Please open your Bibles to Proverbs 31, and if, um, if you know uh, the Proverbs at all or have been in church for a while, you probably are familiar with, with uh, Proverbs 31. It's, you know, the, the wise woman. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get to her later on in our series on, on um, the wisdom of Jesus, but we're going to look at the first nine verses, which maybe you're not familiar with. Uh, they, they still involve a very wise woman, but, um, but, but you'll, you'll understand here as, uh, as we look at verses 1 through 9. Please stand in honor of God's Word. It's the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, uh, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine it is, or, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Let me pray for us. Lord, you have opened your mouth. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear your words. We want to hear... Uh, you speak on behalf of the poor and the needy. We pray that you would open our mouths on behalf of the poor and the needy. Show us your wise justice. We pray that you would show us Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Yeah, so uh, we're going to talk about King Lemuel, uh, a just king, we, we presume, if he, if he took his mother's advice, right? Uh, and then we're going to talk about a just mission and an adjust kingdom. So um, if you've got your outline in your bulletin and want to follow along with that and find that helpful, that's great. So let's talk about King Lemuel, a just king. He's, he's certainly getting instruction in how to be a just king, and he's getting that instruction through, uh, through his mother, right? So we've got some maternal wisdom uh, in Proverbs 31, these first nine verses that are a little bit of a, uh, a prelude to the rest of, of, Psalm, of Proverbs 31, talking about this, this wise, industrious woman. Um, and so we've got uh, a, a mom and her son. We don't actually know who King Lemuel is, and that makes a lot of um, biblical scholars uh, a little bit nervous and, and embarrassed to say that we don't, we don't know who he is. This is the only time that Lemuel is mentioned in the Bible, and he's not mentioned in any uh, extra-biblical literature. And so we just, there's, there's nothing else we know about him. Uh, maybe there's going to come a day, like has often been the case with some of the, the biblical characters that you see in our Old Testament, for instance, you know, they'll be doing some dig over in the ancient Near East, and they'll come across the stone, and it's got an inscription on it, and you go, hey, look, that person, you know, we now have archaeological evidence for whoever they were talking about in the Bible. Maybe we'll find something with Lemuel's name on it one of these days, but right now we don't. 
So I can't really tell you anything about Lemuel. But I can tell you a lot about his mom, right? We know a lot about her. Look, just looking at these first nine verses in, in Proverbs 31, we, we can learn a lot about this woman. Uh, first thing we know about King Lemuel's mother is that she loves her son. She loves him enough uh, to speak these truths to him, to warn him, to admonish him, and to share maternal wisdom, right? Um, dads aren't the only ones you know, supposed to be sharing wisdom uh, with their sons. Moms too, you know, sons and daughters. So what we realize is that she's warning him against a couple of things. First thing that, that she warns him against is uh, warning him against women, right? Because all women are bad. <laughs> Those, those terrible women. Uh, no, of course not. Not all women are bad. I mean, this is his mom speaking, so, uh, you know, she's good. But what kind of woman is she warning him against? She's warning him against the kind of woman who is going to be uh, manipulating him, uh, distracting him, most likely sexually, right? Um, who's going to be enticing him and distracting him from what he ought to be doing, which is ruling well using his power and his authority to bless his people and to pursue justice. So stay away from women that are going to entrap him and and distract him and take him off course so that he's not pursuing righteousness. And instead, you know, the the opposite is is also true. Pursue a a woman who's noble and good and righteous and godly. Uh, So his mom warns him against, um, you know, women that are going to be bad for him, uh, and she warns him against wine that's going to be bad for him, because we know all wine is bad, right? No. Uh, so wine's not bad, but like the point is anything that's going to intoxicate him and distract him and, and uh, impair his judgment, right? So drinking the whole six-pack, that's probably bad. Uh, a pint's not bad. Drinking the whole bottle is probably bad. A glass of wine's not bad. Uh, anything that's going to make him uh, not be paying attention and not be a blessing to his people is what she's warning him against. And so she loves her son. She's sharing this, um, this instruction and these admonishments, but she's also demonstrating not only her love for her son, but her love for the vulnerable and her love for the poor, her love for the needy. And you see this in verses 8 and 9 in particular, because she's telling her son, use your authority and use your reign and your position to open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Um, Or there's a same word that's used in verse 6 to talk about the perishing, those whose lives hang in the balance. So maybe they are truly mute, like physically unable to speak, or they're just mute circumstantially. They're voiceless. They can't speak up for themselves. They don't have any defendant. Uh, They don't have anybody to stand in the gap. And and therefore, they are in a very precarious um, position. Um, Perhaps it's legally. Perhaps it's socially. Perhaps it's, uh, you know, um, something that's making them vulnerable and their lives are hanging in the balance. Literally, they, they could be perishing. And so King, Lemuel, or King Lemuel's mother is demonstrating her love for her son, but also her concern and her love for those who are voiceless, those who are perishing. Verse 9, she says, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of, or, or literally grant justice to the poor and the needy, right? So the mute, 
the perishing, the poor, and the needy. These are the people who are on uh, King Lemuel's mother's heart. She loves her son. She loves the vulnerable. And she loves justice. She loves biblical justice. Like balanced biblical justice. Because I think we're all familiar with the category of justice that we might describe as retributive or, or put in the, the criminal justice uh, camp, right? So you go to places in the Bible like Leviticus 19, and we're not surprised to see this at all. It makes sense. It's good. We affirm, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And, and this is the whole thing about justice being blind, right? Justice shouldn't pay attention to how well the defendant is dressed or how shabbily the defendant is dressed. Justice shouldn't pay any attention to how much money the defendant has or doesn't have, right? Justice should be blind. And that's why, you know, this statue of justice holding the scales has the blindfold on. Because it should be impartial. Just like Leviticus 19 says, everybody should be presumed innocent until proven guilty. And that the guilty, no matter what their circumstance, no matter what their background, no matter what their pedigree, whether they're rich or poor, or privileged or unprivileged, they should be treated equally under the law. So when it comes to principles of retribution, when it comes to criminal justice, the, 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 when it comes to how do we suppress you know, injustice, how do we um, execute just sentences on the guilty, the, the Bible speaks very clearly about that kind of equality. That makes sense to us. We go, yeah, that's, that's sort of our concept of justice in a lot of ways. But that's only half of the biblical concept of justice. It's just half of the coin. There's the other side of the coin. So on the one hand, you've got retributive justice, and then on the other hand, in the Bible, you've got restorative justice. The kind of justice that lifts up those who are the victims of injustice, right? And so, you know, you get examples of that um, all throughout Scripture. But justice is not merely retributive, you know, when you punish those who hurt others. It's also restorative where you lift up those who are hurt by others. So we care for the poor, right? Well, when we care for the poor, we're not just demonstrating generosity. Like when you give a donation to whatever group, or maybe you help the food bank and you make a donation to that, you're not just being generous, you're, you're being just in, in the biblical sense of that word. You're helping to lift up the hungry. Um, when you care for orphans or for, you know, foster kids or the fatherless is the biblical category. You're not just showing compassion. That's not just compassion according to the Bible. That's justice according to the Bible. And so I want us to keep very clear in our heads that there's two sides to this, this coin scripturally. And I think in our culture, we, we sort of default and, and we maybe only think there's only one side of the coin and it's the retributive side, but the Bible very, very clearly again and again and again, reaffirms the restorative side. God's heart for the vulnerable. Not just a, you know, a strong hand against the guilty, but, but his affirmation and lifting up those who, those who are hurt uh, by those who are hurting them. So uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote a very, very uh, significant book called Justice, Right and Wrong. 
Uh, and, and this is what he says about this biblical concept of justice. So listen, listen to how he's emphasizing both sides of the scales of justice. But the prophets uh, and the psalmist do not agree. Uh, do, I'm sorry. The prophets and the psalmist do not argue the case that leaving the plight of the lowly is required by justice. They just assume it. You don't even have to make a case for it. There's no burden of proof. It's just assumed. It's there. Self-evident. When they speak of God's justice, when they enjoin their hearers to practice justice, when they complain to God about the absence of justice, they take for granted that justice requires alleviating the plight of the lowly. This is what the Bible clearly communicates about justice. This is what King Lemuel's mother was communicating about justice. Open your mouth. Be a just king. Judge rightly for those who are mute and who are perishing, who are poor and who are needy. You see, how it's, the, the focus isn't there on the criminal. The focus isn't there on retribution. The focus is on restoration. So that's maternal wisdom, right? But, but her maternal wisdom is giving us a glimpse of eternal wisdom uh, because she's giving us a picture of God's heart, God's justice, God's heart for the poor, for the vulnerable, for the mute, for the perishing. Again and again and again, we read things like Isaiah 61 where God says, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. God loves justice. He loves what is right. He loves what is good. Uh, And in Zechariah chapter 7, another place where it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the, the alien, the immigrant, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Those four Uh, The orphan, the widow, the poor, and the immigrant. They're what uh, Wolterstorff described as the quartet of the vulnerable. And they show up all over the place in the Bible. Again and again and again. Places like Psalm 146. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. That's part of his glory. It's part of his praise that he cares for the orphan, the poor, and the widow, and the, the, uh, the alien, right? Uh, that's, that's part of his greatness, and that's why he loves justice. So this is this, um, you know, just king, whether it's King Lemuel or the, the true king of kings, uh, a good king is going to love justice because the true king loves justice. And we see this, we see this in Jesus, who on that Palm Sunday, you know, two millennia ago, was on a, a mission of justice. He, he entered Jerusalem to pursue justice uh, and, and in, a, in two different ways that we're going to talk about. That, that he's going into Jerusalem because as, as, as we're conditioned to think and, and we're, we're very, it's good that we, we go very, very quickly to why did he go into Jerusalem? What was the triumphal entry all about, we know, and Jesus was, was thinking all the time about the cross. Even though everybody around him, uh, they're shouting, Hosanna, and blessed be the name, uh, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. 
they're all excited and shouting these praises because they're thinking that Jesus is entering Jerusalem. His mission in that moment is to overthrow Rome and to, to reestablish you know, Israel's greatness and so on. But that's not what was going through Jesus' mind. You know, as everybody's you know, shouting and as Jesus is riding that, that young donkey and, uh, and as everybody's waving their palms and putting their jackets down in front of the, the path so that Jesus could try it on that. So it's this royal, regal ceremony. Uh, what's going through Jesus' mind is God's justice. And his just mission to go to Jerusalem to justify sinners. And you were with us, um, most of you were with us in our study of Mark, and maybe you recall that like at least three different times, and, and, and three times in Mark's gospel, where before they get to the, the triumphal entry, on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus pulls the disciples together and says, guys, come here, I want to tell you what's going to happen. The Son of Man's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be killed, and then he'll rise. And so he's, he's, as he has his face set like flint toward Jerusalem, he has this, this purpose, this undiluted un, um, goal in mind, which is to go to the cross and to give his life as a ransom for many, that he would justify sinners, that he would satisfy God's justice against all sin any kind of sin, all, you know, who have turned our backs on him and according to God's cosmic justice, you know, there, there is a sentence uh, against sin. And, and none of us can escape that. None of us is exempt from that. None of us is innocent. And because God is a just God, he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. If he did... We couldn't trust him to be just. If God were the kind of God that would just kind of, you know, wink at sin and just sweep, sweep our offenses under the cosmic carpet, you know, it's fine. Nothing to see here. You're good. What, what would you say to any, any judge in any circuit court who just treated offenses like that? Yeah, it's no big deal. I'm, hey, you know what? I'm in a good mood. Had a really good steak dinner last night. I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm just feeling gregarious. Go on. You're fine. You're, you're pardoned. What would the newspapers be reporting about that the day after? So our sense of justice is so deeply uh, in, inside our hearts that we cry out for it. And we cry out for it because we need it. It's necessary. It's part of God's image in us. God is a just God. That means he can't ignore, you know, what's wrong with the world. He can't ignore what's wrong with us. So Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to justify sinners. Meaning, he would come and lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Meaning, he would absorb God's just sentence for our offenses. He would take our guilt on himself. That's what the cross was about. 
That's what the condemnation was about. That's what the darkness was about. That's what the separation, the alienation was about, being forsaken. That's what that was about. That's the sentence for sin that Jesus took on himself. And now everybody and anybody, anybody who looks to Jesus and puts his or her faith in Jesus to be my sin-bearing substitute, that person is clean in God's eyes. That person is forgiven in God's eyes. That person is, it's, well, it's just as if they never sinned, justified. That's what that concept means. Yeah, I know, you know, we know we're sinners. But because Jesus took our place, that sentence for sin is paid. It's paid in full and it's done. And we no longer have to bear that load. And God looks at us and he loves us and he forgives us, right? That's what justification is. And if you haven't connected those dots personally, if you haven't put your faith in the, in the sin-bearing substitute for our sins, someone is going to pay for our sins. And it will either be the sinner or the sinner's substitute. Put your faith in the substitute. God's Justice is exalted at the cross, and he justifies sinners. So that's what was on Jesus' mind, this just mission. As he's moving closer and closer to Jerusalem, as he has this triumphal entry, he's thinking about the cross. He's thinking about how he's going to justify sinners. But that's not all he was thinking about. He was also thinking about how to bring justice to sufferers. Justifying sinners and bringing justice to sufferers go hand in glove. And here's what I mean. Like as, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, he's talking to the disciples about the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise again. And he's also bringing justice to sufferers all along the way. This is what he's thinking about. This is part of his mission. Like, so I'm going to show you some samples from uh, Mark, and maybe you'll remember some of these episodes. Like when the disciples uh, were telling the, the parents, the moms and the dads who were bringing their little children, these helpless little children, these defenseless children, the weakest of the weak, they were bringing their children to Jesus to have them bless them, and the disciples were saying, no, keep them away. He doesn't need to be bothered with your rabble, with your rugrats. And that was their society back then, did not value children. They were to be seen and not heard, and you know, maybe when they grow up and they can be productive, then they'll be useful, and then we'll value them. But Jesus said, no, 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 we're not going to have any of that. Bring the children to me. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' justice on display, defending the vulnerable and the helpless. And then in uh, chapter 10, verse 21, so you've got the rich young ruler, and he comes up to Jesus, and he's kind of full of himself. He's thinking he's got the Ten Commandments down, but he's sort of making sure he's checked all the boxes. And he goes to Jesus, you know, you're a pretty spiritual guy. You're a leader, and I want to get your opinion on this. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus kind of runs through the Ten Commandments with them. Says, you know, check, 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 did all those since I was a boy good. And then Jesus just looks at him and nails him. 
You still lack one thing. Go sell your possessions and then come follow me. I left out something. Does anybody remember what I left out? Sell your possessions and what? Give to the poor. Jesus is thinking about this guy's justification, how he can be right with God, and he's thinking about justice for the poor. They go together. Uh, It keeps going. So then they get to uh, Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. It's a few days before the triumphal entry. And this big procession, like um, on the front of your bulletin, I don't know if you pay attention to these images, but this is big crowd. You know, they've got their, uh, everybody's around Jesus. And it's one of these, you know, ancient etchings uh, from this very old Bible, uh, I think from the 17th century. But I just thought it was a cool image. This might lead you to think this is the triumphal entry. I did that on purpose. It's actually not Jerusalem, it's Jericho. And this is the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Because I want you to see and I want you to understand that there is this procession, this crowd of people following Jesus, marching up to Jerusalem. The triumphal entry, yeah, began outside the gates of Jerusalem, but the procession began days and weeks before, and they're moving along on their way up to Jerusalem. And they go through Jericho, and as they're moving along, and everybody's excited, we can't wait. Come on, Jesus, we're going to see your kingdom go. We're going to see Rome overthrow it. And they hear, Jesus hears this voice, you know, uh, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And, and everybody's like, oh, shut him up. And Jesus says, who's that? And like, oh, it's just some blind beggar. Don't worry about him. Come on, we've got more important things to do. And he says, no, we don't. No, we don't. And Jesus stops the whole crowd. And they bring Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, to Jesus, and he heals him. And then Bartimaeus follows Jesus. He gets into this crowd, carries him on to Jerusalem. Then they enter Jerusalem, and it just keeps going. You see Jesus' heart for justice, justice for the suffering. Um, They're in the temple, and Jesus pays attention to everybody who's giving their gifts and putting them in the the baskets, the the tithes and offering baskets, the, the money box, and he sees a bunch of rich people making their offerings, and then he sees this poor widow. Remember the quartet? She, she checks two of those boxes. This poor widow puts in two little copper coins, and Jesus singles her out, lifts her up. You know, this justif- justifies her in the sense that she's good. She, what she's done is healthy. What she's done is to be commended. And, she's, and Jesus says, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. And she's remembered for that tiny little act. He's thinking about the poor. Um, He's thinking about those who are pregnant, those who are nursing infants, and he's warning them about the last days. And so again and again and again, you see Jesus' heart for those who are suffering, and he wants to bring justice to them. So all these encounters tell us about the mission of Jesus. They tell us what Psalm 146 was telling us before. Uh, But I'm going to read some other verses where it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, this grand and glorious God who's lifted up and who created all things and has all this power. Who is like the Lord our God? Oh, he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. 
The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. You think Jesus had Psalm 146 in his mind as he's caring for all these people on his way to Jerusalem? Giving sight to the blind? Anyway. What do you think of the phrase social justice? Kind of a loaded couple of words, right? Some of you are like, yeah, social justice warrior. Others of you are like, that's blasphemy. We don't say that in church. That's bad, you know. It's very, uh, it's such an amorphous term, it actually means nothing. But as, as, as culture is talking about it, here's, here's how we can get our hands on it. Social justice, biblically, is, is pursuing God's just society, and it's not optional. For, for those who follow Jesus, you know, you see what Jesus is doing. We are to be like him. We are to be his followers, and so it's not optional for us to be pursuing God's just society. Over and over again, you know, God's pouring out his heart and showing his concern for that quartet of the vulnerable, for those who are suffering injustice. And over and over again, the Bible advocates for those whose society believes are disposable. We don't need them. We don't care about them. God does. And and we see the way that, that our justification and God's justice, you know, match this up. Like, God, God didn't consider us disposable when we were rebellious and sinful, you know, and how much value were we in, in his kingdom as we're trying to build our own kingdom and living lives contrary to his? But he didn't get rid of us. He didn't dispose of us. He saved us and he redeemed us. And then he's enlisting us to be a part of what he's doing to bring justice on earth as it is in heaven, right? So, um, here's an example. I'll go back to that verse in Leviticus that we started with, where it says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor, right? Um, so we can talk about how good it is to pursue this just society and to be like Jesus and care for the poor, but let, let's talk about some specifics. Let's, let's see how this works out in real time, not just kind of in this uh, nebulous ideological thing. But um, some of you may have saw in the news this past week, right? Even just, I think it was Wednesday, uh, Virginia abolished the death penalty in, in our commonwealth. There's been talking about it for years and years and years. And I remember as a college student, you know, hearing about um, Joe Giarratano, who was on Virginia's death row and people advocating for him that he was innocent. And um, the Bible certainly gives plenty of support for the death penalty. But you know what it doesn't support? Is the unjust application of the death penalty. Estimates are, consistent studies have shown, one out of 10 people on death row nationally is innocent. Oh, but, you know, those studies, they're all biased. They've all got, you know, their agendas. They're all political. Like, I get it. Sure, you're right. Some of them are. There's a margin of error. So let's just assume. I mean, these are numerous studies. There's, There's pretty consistent agreement. One out of 10 are innocent. Let's just assume one out of 100 are innocent. Guys like Anthony Ray Hinton. He was arrested, wrongly arrested, 
for two counts of murder and convicted, sent to the uh, death row in Alabama in the 80s. 30 years later, he finally was able to prove his innocence. 30 years of living in a five-by-seven cell with no window and just bars that look out on where the guards walk and where over those 30 years he watched 54 other inmates walk to their death 30 feet down that row to the electric chair. Wondering for that entire 30-year period, am I going there? When's my day coming? Finally, through uh, the work of the... um, of Gary, uh, not Gary Hagan, sorry, that's International Justice Mission. Um, help me, I'm forgetting. Brian Stevenson, right. Um, he, he was the attorney, and Brian Stevenson finally got Anthony Ray Hinton the appeals that he needed, and it had to go all the way to the United States Supreme Court where there was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court that exonerated Anthony Ray Hinton. He gets out of jail, leaves this prison in Alabama, goes to his friend's house who had faithfully visited him every Friday for those 30 years. Um, You know, hey, what can I do for you? Let's have this nice meal. First time Anthony Ray Hinton had eaten a meal with a fork in 30 years. First time he'd slept in a soft bed, in a bedroom, in 30 years. He was so freaked out, actually, so overcome by anxiety, being in a room that big, being in a soft bed, he couldn't sleep. He went into the bathroom and lay down on the hard floor, and that's where he could sleep that night. One out of 10. Let's just say one out of 100 are innocent. What would we do if one out of every hundred passenger jet planes that take off from any airport in the world, what if one out of a hundred of them crashed and burned and killed all the innocent people on board? But, you know, collateral damage is too bad. We're just going to keep flying because people got to get to where they're going. You know, we've got a world to run here and we've got, you know, jobs and economics and so on to consider, no, there would not be another flight that would ever take off from the ground unless we could figure out why is one out of every hundred airplanes crashing and people being killed. So why aren't we like going, hey, can we hit the pause? Can we tap the brakes on capital punishment? Can we, can we, can we examine the criminal justice system for some racial disparities? Can we, can we look at the numbers and kind of go, what's going on here? right? Just, just, this is real time. I, and for some of you, I, you're, I know you're going, ah, this feels a little too, too concrete. I don't know, is Anthony Ray Hinton's life too concrete? Again, I'm not making a, a position on the death penalty itself. You can find biblical support for it, but the Bible does not support the unjust application of the death penalty. And, there, and the list goes on and on. How do we pursue justice? How do we, 
uh, worship a God in Psalm 146 who executes justice for the oppressed. The Lord sets the prisoners free. Like, how do we follow that God on his just mission? To set innocent prisoners free. Uh, to be a part of his just kingdom where, where we who are justified by Jesus and what he did on the cross bear the fruit of living justly. Right? Nobody goes to heaven because they're wonderful, you know, justice warriors. That's not what gets anybody into heaven. We get into heaven because Jesus died for our sins and justified us. But we also need to bear the fruit of his spirit at work in us to make our lives just, proving, demonstrating you're justified. It's the whole, you know, evidence of, of our salvation equation. Um, Tim Keller puts it this way. How do we know that we're really saved by faith? You care about the poor. When you see people without resources, your heart goes out to them. If it doesn't, maybe you're saved, but you're lacking the evidence of salvation. Justification leads to justice. Justice is the sign of justification, and it's all through the Bible. So what we're saying is that Jesus came to bring justification to repentant sinners, and Jesus came to bring justice through repentant sinners. That's the evidence that we understand that we've been justified. It's the evidence that we appreciate the God whose heart goes out to those who were guilty, who were vulnerable, who were uh, poor and needy, and who needed grace, and who needed his mercy. We worship that God, and we want to demonstrate that heart to the world. So Morgan, uh, Hillary Morgan Freer, who wrote Mama Bear Apologetics, says if we are not uh, deeply compassionate toward the poor and the marginalized, then we really don't understand the heart of God. We're talking about the Proverbs, and Jesus had a bunch of Proverbs of his own. One of them was that wisdom is proven by her children, meaning that you'll, know, you'll recognize wisdom. It's got fruit. It's visible. And if we are understanding God's justice, God's just wisdom, it will have fruit in our lives. It, it, it has children. Anything that's living is able to reproduce. And unless our faith is alive, then uh, it, you know, it's going to produce fruit. If it's not alive, then it's dead. So James 2 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So does our justification have fruit? Does our justification demonstrate justice. And we don't have to do everything. You don't have to, you know, tackle and check all the boxes, but we all have to do something, right? We all should be, have some kind of, you know, dirt on our hands as we're trying to, to, to make a difference in our community. And that could look like any kind of number of things, here, even here locally. So I'll throw out some ideas. You can take these uh, for as you like, or, you know, if you want to learn more or get more information, talk to me afterward. But you can be involved with Comfort Care Women's Health and defending uh, the rights of the unborn, pursuing justice for the unborn. You can get involved with the Waynesboro Area Refuge Ministry, WARM, the WARM Shelter, and, and help bring justice to the homeless. You can get involved with the Verona Community Food Pantry and help bring justice to the hungry. You can be involved in new directions and help bring justice to abused women. You can get involved with uh, our foster care system and go get involved with social service and become a foster family. Uh, um, Josh Keene, who was here yesterday, was talking about how when he was in Louisiana, they ran out of foster families. And so social services said, well, what are we going to do with these uh, foster kids? We don't have anywhere to place them. We'll put them in the juvenile detention centers. 
That's where we'll house them. It's safe. They'll get, they'll get meals. They'll be off the streets. And they'll be exposed to all kinds of real juvenile delinquents. And shocker, 80 to 90% of those kids ended up committing real crimes after they got out of juvie. They were creating criminals. And our involvement in caring for foster kids can help prevent that, right? Can bring justice to, to them. Uh, you can become a court-appointed special advocate. You can do all kinds of things. We, we can learn. We can grow. We can just start going, okay, I'm concerned about justification. That's what reform circles, you know, we, we're all about that. We get that we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But our fathers and mothers in the faith also said we're, not saved, we're saved by faith alone, but we're not saved by a faith that remains alone. And so we need to grow. We need to figure out how does my justification produce the fruit of a just life, the pursuit of justice, so that you and I, as we follow Jesus, wherever he's leading us, are loving mercy, doing justice, and walking humbly with him. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, this is a, a big bite to chew on, and um, I know it, it challenges me and it challenges uh, many of us. Uh, but we pray that uh, as we're confronted with the challenge of justice and with just the overwhelming uh, needs for justice in our community, that we would not lose sight of you, uh, that we would not lose sight of your kingdom, of your pursuit of justice, your heart for the poor, the vulnerable, uh, the weak, and the helpless. And so please uh, help us find our place. Help us to be earnest in our efforts to, to make a difference in the lives of, of orphans and widows and aliens and, and poor um, and to be a voice for the voiceless. Thank you for not disposing of us, not casting us aside uh, in our weakness, in our helplessness, even in our guilt, but for giving us Jesus who loves us and who gave himself for us. In his name we pray.